0: W233AH Monticello.
1: This week on Science Friday, a security expert lays out how AI-generated video could be misused during an election year. My first thought was, whoa, I am super impressed. Followed very closely by my second thought of, oh, this is going to impact a lot. Plus, a scientist who's putting shark noses to the test. That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
2: Fridays, 2 to 4 p.m. on Radio Catskill. Thank mm-hmm.
3: to the local edition live from Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty. I'm your host, Jason Dole. And coming up, we'll talk about how it's student press freedom day today before the day ends. But first up, we're going to get the latest news from the Times Union newspaper, timesunion.com. For that, we turn to Philip Pantuso. Philip, welcome back.
2: Always good to be with you.
3: So let's start off talking about the latest on uh, redistricting in New York State. Uh, This is like voting district maps. If you could, could you give us a recap of why is redistricting happening again? Just give people that reminder.
2: Why is it happening again? That's a great question. Um, Just when we got used to last year's maps, right? So so people might remember um, the redistricting process. It happens every 10 years after the census. Um, and the maps that were drawn in New York, <clears throat> the original maps, were drawn by the Democratic-controlled state legislature, and they were found by a judge to be too gerrymandered, basically. So that kick-started this long process that eventually led to an independent special master, quote-unquote, drawing maps, which were the ones that we used for the 2022 elections, both state and federal after the 2022 elections, there was a group of 10 New York residents that filed a lawsuit challenging those maps. They were represented by this law firm that topped itself as representing the Democratic Party and Democratic campaigns. And they were essentially a challenge to those maps to essentially throw them out and give the Democratic-controlled legislature another opportunity to draw maybe less gerrymandered maps, but ones that were more favorable to Democrats than the ones that were drawn by the special master. And eventually, the State Court of Appeals in December ruled that the Independent Redistricting Commission will get another chance to draw the maps.
3: Essentially, the Court of Appeals made that ruling. At the bottom line for them, basically, was, hey, there was a process in the Constitution for creating districts and that process didn't happen. So constitutionally, that's what needs to still happen is basically what their ruling was saying, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we're getting new maps again. Um, The, the independent redistricting commission, which is which is a bipartisan independent state body. um, Last week um, I think right after we talked last week, actually, came out with its recommendations for those new maps and they are mostly similar to the ones that we used in 2022 with, um, a couple of key differences. Um, like basically they take a little bit from, um, a a Republican leaning district in, um, in the Syracuse area and give it to, um, a different republican leaning district, uh, Mark Marlinaro's district, New York 19. And the Ulster County district that Pat Ryan represents, New York 18, is a little bit more friendly to Democrats. And the 17th district, where Mike Lawler is, is basically protected. Really, the main thing to know about this is that the maps that the Independent Redistricting Commission came forward with last week would shift probably one seat to the Democrats from the, from the current math. So then the next step is for the legislature to vote on whether to just accept these maps or to not accept them and to actually go through their own process and, and draw their own again. So that's, that's where we stand right now. Um, I would be pretty surprised if it weren't done before April when the primaries are, because if you shift the maps between the primaries and the general election, that gets really confusing for everybody. So the easiest and most streamlined thing for the legislature to do would be to just approve these independent maps. That redistricting commission voted nine to one to approve them, but it's not totally clear if that's going to happen because Hakeem Jeffries, you know, a New York representative who's the minority leader in the House but basically cautioned against adopting these maps through his spokesman after they came out last week. He said that the map adopted by the independent redistricting commission should be meticulously scrutinized by the New York state legislature. So that puts added pressure um, on the Democrats um, and is probably weighing heavily on their decision-making right now.
3: To what end is he looking for greater scrutiny?
2: You know, I think if Democrats had their druthers here um, the state legislature here in New York would reject these Independent Redistricting Commission maps um, and come up with something that is sort of halfway between what the bipartisan independent body came up with and the heavily illegally gerrymandered maps that they originally came up with in 2021. Um, I think Hakim Jeffries and the rest of the Democrats currently in Congress and probably even the state Democrats want maps that are more favorable to them. The question is whether they can draw maps that will withstand legal scrutiny and do so in what's going to need to be a pretty expedited timeline.
3: Were any of these people around in 2022? Do they remember (laughs) what happened in 2022? We had to do an enormous amount of work just to communicate to people where they were voting and for whom, because it kept changing all the time. And it was changing because... The Democrats gerrymandered the districts that's that's what happened, so that to me is like, well, boy, Democrats, you should not do that this time
2: yeah, I mean we'll see they 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 have time to to learn their lesson um, you know they still haven't actually taken a vote yet on whether they will accept these independent maps or not. I mean, yeah, I, I remember coming on the show and talking about how. There were voters, I was one of them, who were voting in one district for a special election and on the same day in a primary for a different district. Um, and yeah, it was, it was very, very confusing. And I think if the lines continue to move, it's, you know, voters really are the ones who lose here. Um, because all this whole process, I think just adds to the belief that, um, <laughs> that, that elected officials aren't really looking after what's best for voters.
3: Right. There's, there's a certain lack of faith in government, and there's been an effort to create a lack of faith specifically in the electoral process. And Mm -hmm. anything that even smells close to shenanigans around this will just reinforce those notions at a time when I feel like, you know, the Republic and the state really can't afford that.
2: For sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, to their credit, Um, and this is in their best interest, but the Republicans have said that the maps that were drawn in, um, 2022 by the special master should be the ones that we that we use going forward. They said this case shouldn't have gone through the court of appeals in the first place. Again, that's because they will lose less seats than if if it hadn't gone through. But, you know, for once, they're the ones saying that, Hey, the electoral process is actually working. Um, and, you know, we'll see if, like, if the legislature votes not to accept these maps and then tries to draw their own and those get challenged and a judge finds them illegally drawn or or, or gerrymandered or otherwise problematic, you know, that would be two times in a row that the legislature tried and failed to produce legal um, voting maps. And so that would start to raise questions about whether the legislature should be trusted with that process at all. You know, it does raise questions about whether that's the best body to oversee this process.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. Well, we spent a lot of time on this, but just before we move on to the next story, just to make sure that this doesn't get lost for the listener, what happens next? What's the next step that we've got to watch for here?
2: The the next step will be the state legislature, I I expect this will happen sometime in in the next couple of weeks, will vote to either approve, or accept um, or not accept um, the maps that were put forward by the Independent Redistricting Commission. If they accept them, then great, those will be the maps. Um, If they don't, then that will kickstart the process of them having to draw their own, and we'll be looking at a photo finish probably um, to get those approved and, and in place in time for the primaries.
3: Okay. You've been giving us updates on this uh, 21-year-old uh, murder case uh, of Megan McDonald, 2003 murder in Orange County. But now her family is asking the state attorney general and even the FBI to uh, investigate this case?
2: So people might remember not, uh, last year, last April, state police arrested a suspect in this case, a man named Edward Holly. Um, And at the news conference, the Orange County District Attorney, David Hoovler, was not present. Um, When they arrested and charged Edward Hawley, that started this clock of six days for the district attorney's office to present a case to a grand jury, which would decide whether or not to hand up an indictment. Um, Hoovler said that that didn't give him enough time. He wasn't looped in on the state police's process and he was not able to gather enough evidence to take to a grand jury before that time ran out. And uh, the suspect was, a, was set free at the end of those six days. Um, right immediately afterward, David hubler the DA, recused himself. He said that he had a prior conflict of interest because before he was the district attorney, when he was in private practice, he had represented a prior person of interest in the case who has since passed away. So, a special prosecutor was appointed. They went through all the evidence. They presented it. They presented their case to a grand jury, which handed up a second-degree murder indictment for Edward Hawley last month. And so that's kind of where things stand now. There's been some reporting. We haven't been able to do a ton of our own reporting on this yet because it's all in the state police uh, internal report that we have not yet been able to get our hands on. Um. But that report suggests that um, David Hoover, the, the DA, when he was in private practice, because he had this prior representation, he had tried to secure um, a plea deal for the suspects he represented. And when that didn't come to pass, he tampered with the case. And that created some bad blood, some friction between his office and the state police office. Um, and that that's why he was kind of left out of the state police investigation and the charges that they announced when they made their arrest uh, last April. Again, I don't, I don't want to get too much into the details of exactly what he did or didn't do because there's been some reporting about this, but it's all from one single document from the state police. David Hoover has denied any wrongdoing here. And we haven't been able to read that document yet ourselves.
3: But it's enough for the family of Megan McDonald to say, well, we we don't like the sound of this. Please look into this New York AG and FBI.
2: Yeah, for sure. So they they sat down for an interview um, for a really lovely story that our Lama Bellamy wrote and reported that came out yesterday, basically about who Megan was as a person and also their kind of crusade to get both justice in this almost now 21-year-old murder case and to get the attorney general and or the FBI to investigate whatever happened here between state police and David Hoover. They definitely feel as if Hoover acted unethically. Um, He's both claiming attorney-client privilege by not revealing information, but was seeking a plea deal and promising to reveal certain information in seeking that plea deal, um, while he was DA um, so it's, a, it's kind of a messy situation
3: okay and staying with uh, Orange County um, you have an update on the allegations that the county improperly procured information technology services to possibly enrich the brother-in-law of a county official what's the latest on this
2: Yeah, so these allegations first came to light in October, and the county put together a special investigative committee, the county legislature, and they came out with their report yesterday. And they found that the contracts were, in fact, improperly procured, but that the process, while it maybe was riddled with errors, didn't rise to the level of criminality. So the allegation here is that... um, these contracts, which were for uh, an IT company called Star CIO, um, were, artifici- were initially entered into and then artificially inflated over the years to enrich the proprietor of, of the company, uh, this guy named Isaac Sakalik, who is the brother-in-law of the HR commissioner in, in Orange County. Uh, the county committee says that that's not accurate. Like, they, there's no, you know, that, that's, that's basically fraud there's there's no there's no fraud that happened here, but the process uh, that they went through in order to procure the contracts was just not really good like they the the competitive bid contracts that they got didn't really stand up to scrutiny. One of the competitive bid contracts that they um that they procured was for the company that had previously provided IT services to the county and was doing such a bad job that they fired them, kickstarting the whole need to find a replacement company in the first place. So, you know, what, what, what the HR commissioner has said and what the county attorney has said and what the county executive has said the whole time is that um, there was no illegal process or no criminality that happened here. But that the county's procurement policies could stand to be updated, and that they're in the process of doing that. That is essentially what this report says. It says that these processes were bad, um, some steps were skipped, basically, but that they weren't they weren't designed, or it wasn't in the in the effort to enrich uh, a family member here. So um, that's that's kind of it. Like, there's not going to be uh, there's not going to be any kind of criminal charges to result from this, at least from the county. Um, State Senator James Scoofus, who represents this area, has also been looking into this, and he, a couple of months ago, sent a referral to the FBI. Um, Scoofus has kind of been on a crusade about this. He, I think, is convinced that there is a level of criminality here. The FBI seems to be looking into it, but they haven't publicized any findings yet, so we're not sure... Where what the status of their investigation is? Okay, and
3: finally, we have an update on Bert Gulnick, and that was a, a finance official for Ulster County. Uh, and there were accusations of impropriety uh, outside of the county. And uh, there's there's been a verdict in that case, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. So here's some actual county financial impropriety. Um, Bert Gulnick. Well, it didn't go to trial, but he pleaded guilty. Um, last fall to embezzling funds um, from two organizations for which he served as treasurer while he was also serving as the Ulster County Finance Commissioner. Um, He stole money from the Hurley Recreation Association in the town of Hurley and from the committee to re-elect Mike Hine, the former Ulster County uh, Executive. He was sentenced on Friday to two years in jail. Um according to Ulster County District Attorney Emmanuel Necci. Um, so that basically brings an end to that case. There is also an ongoing audit of the Ulster County finances uh, by that the controller, the county controller and the state controller's office are conducting right now to make sure that Berg Gonick didn't steal money from the county as well. So it's possible there will be further charges, but the the case against him for embezzling money outside of the county uh, has reached this conclusion.
3: Okay, well, thanks for that update on that story and all of these stories, which are all up now at timesunion.com. Philip, thank you again for joining us.
2: You got it. Take care.
3: You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. before we move on with the program, just a quick reminder uh, that we do expect snow tonight. It's snowing right now outside of our studios here in Liberty. Uh, Possibility of mixed winter precipitation coming into this. uh, One to three inches of snow is possible. Overnight low down to 31. Any remaining mixed precipitation will likely change to rain tomorrow morning. Partly cloudy tomorrow afternoon. High 46. But the cold air returns tomorrow night. Overnight low of 19. Well, today... Today is Student Press Day and uh, Student Press Freedom Day. And to learn more about what that means, as well as the work that student journalists do and the challenges they face, Radio Catskill's own student journalist, Marin Scotton, spoke to Hannah Olson, student journalist advocating for student press freedom and the very future of journalism itself.
0: February 22nd is Student Press Freedom Day, a day dedicated to raising awareness of the challenges student journalists face, celebrating their contributions to their schools and communities, and taking actions to protect and restore their First Amendment freedoms. This year's theme is powerfully persistent. Joining us today is Hannah Olson, the Editor-in-Chief of the Mountain View High School Oracle in Los Altos, California. She's experienced student media censorship firsthand but with the help of the Student Press Law Center, also known as the SPLC, she asserted her rights as a student
1: journalist and has since been a strong advocate for student press freedom. It's a day that really brings to light um, issues within our local communities regarding censorship of um, student newspapers, um, the importance of passing new voices laws in states in which they may not already be passed. Um, and overall, I think it's about celebrating the work of student journalists who continue to push the boundaries and push for um, more protection for student journalists across the United States, because unfortunately, there aren't um, these new voices laws that are passed around all of um, the United States. And yeah, I think Student Press Freedom Day is about celebrating and acknowledging the work of students who continue to fight for better protections for student journalists.
0: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the New Voices Law. Can you tell me what that is and how it supports and empowers student journalists?
1: Yeah, New Voices Laws are pieces of um, legislature that give additional protections to student journalists. Um, I know in California, we have Ed Code of Protection specifically listed that define what censorship is and give additional protections to student journalists. Um, This kind of acts as a counter to the decision in the Hazelwood versus Kohlmeyer case, which makes it so that um, across the United States, you know, in states without these new voices laws, um, student-run newspapers may not have full autonomy to publish without censorship because um, it is a school-affiliated publication. And um, this also applies to yearbook, any student-run publication. But yeah, these new voices laws are really what allows um, student journalists, at least in my state of California to publish without fear of retribution, fear of censorship. And it really allows for stories that are important to communities to be told.
0: And I know you've experienced student media censorship firsthand. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience and how it led you to doing some of this advocacy work?
1: Last year, when I was an editor for my school's uh, newspaper, the Mountview High School Oracle, we had writers who were working on an article that was very investigative about sexual harassment at our school. And it included a lot of really, really important, but also very like jarring student stories about sexual harassment. There was also a focus on digital harassment through social media. Um, And this article was really thoroughly investigated and um administration became heavily involved in the process of editing that article. And we were strongly encouraged to take out specific details from the article, change names to make them anonymous. Overall, we were encouraged not to publish the article at all because we were told that it would have negative impacts on our community. Um, there were concerns over how the article would reflect on the students or reflect on the school. And yeah, we've received a lot of pressure um, to change article content and really through meeting with an SPLC attorney through SPLC's um hotline that is available through their website, our student journalists received a lot of guidance that allowed them to just push forward and continue publishing the story because we knew that we were um, in the right to do so according to our California Code Protections. Yeah, so despite a lot of pressure not to publish this story, um, which is really difficult for student journalists because it's tough when you get confronted by a a group of people a group of adults in a position of power who are telling you this is bad like you shouldn't publish this this is going to potentially do harm to your community and it was really important for us to have the, a tool like the splc's hotline which gave us a lot of reassurance that we could publish so long as we weren't um you know committing libel, libel or slander which we weren't so yeah that was that's just a recap of my experience with uh censorship and attempted censorship so the piece was actually published Yeah, we did end up publishing the piece. What was the reception like? Reception from the community was really positive. I think students were glad to see these stories be told, which made us even more reassured that we had gone through with with publishing the article. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of uh, talk about the content of the article just because of the very nature of the subject, which is sexual harassment. Um, The administrative response was not so positive. I think that administration still wishes that parts of the article had not been published. Um, but overall, I would say the community response from the article was very appreciative that we had been bringing this story to light because it was something that students could, unfortunately, a lot of them could relate to. So that was why we thought it was so important that we persist, um, and publish this work. Mm -hmm. And what
0: advice do you have for other student journalists who may be dealing with similar First Amendment freedoms?
1: I would say that if you're ever concerned about whether you're in the ability to publish an article or not, whether you, if you have questions about what parts of a story you can publish, I would say to use your resources and use the tools that are offered by organizations like the SPLC. Um, you can reference their website and use their hotline. You can get matched with an SPLC attorney. Um, if you are ever facing censorship and overall, I would, I would really encourage student journalists to persist and to keep pushing, um, keep fighting for their ability to publish. Because I think student press, pr- student press freedom and autonomy of student publications is so important, especially right now in the climate of the United States. We want to make sure that student journalists are protected and able to publish the stories that are important because that's really a crux for our democracy. So I would really encourage um, perseverance and persistence from student journalists who may be going through tough times, just like my newspaper was.
0: Mm-hmm. And why is it important, not just for other students, but for the general public to be aware of the challenges that student journalists
1: face? Like I said, I think student journalism is a really important part of our like foundational local democracy. I think it's a way that at my school, a lot of students are informed about what's happening on their campus. For a lot of students at my school, it's probably the only print newspaper that they're going to read because most, you know, teenagers, stu- students my age are not sitting down in the morning and reading an actual physical newspaper. Um, I think it's really important for people to be aware of the challenges that student journalists face so that we can uplift and support our local publications, our local student publications, because they're such a crux for community and for democracy at a really local level. Mm -hmm. And what's next for
0: you and what are your goals as a student journalist? And are you still at the same high school kind of what's coming up for you this year?
1: Yeah, I'm still at the same high school this year. Um, I'm a co-editor-in-chief of my school newspaper, which has been such an incredible experience being in that leadership role. I think what's next, I really hope that if anything, I guess my ongoing like work in support of Student Press Freedom can ensure that my school's journalism program is protected and is safe. I hope that when my brothers come to my high school, they can have a newspaper that is as robust and publishes as important of stories as the newspaper that I've had for the past four years, the Oracle. Um, I think that's the goal of my work is just to ensure that our student newspaper is protected, because I would hate to see it be compromised in any way in the long run, and I think that it's something that's really worth protecting.
0: That was Hannah Olson, the editor-in-chief of the Mountain View High School Oracle, in Liberty, I'm Maren Scotton for Radio Catskill.
3: Thank you, Maren, for that report. Marin Scotton is our own, one of our own Radio Catskill's own student journalists here helping us out. So, which makes that story even better. Hey, this has been The Local Edition. I've been your host, Jason Dole. That's it for me. We're getting ready For The Daily, which will be up next after that, it's Ramble Tamble with John and Claire kicking off our great Thursday night music lineup. Connect the Dots is on at 9 and then at 10, it's Virtual Soundscapes. Just a reminder that it is snowing. Uh, We expect snow through the night tonight. A possibility of mixed winter precipitation as well. One to three inches of snow is possible. Overnight low down to 31 Any remaining mixed precipitation in the morning will likely change to rain. Then it'll be partly cloudy in the afternoon.